0: On the last episode of Obscene, my guests and I touched upon a policy that could have assisted generations of Americans in poverty. That vetoed policy was the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971, which was designed to establish a comprehensive domestic system of child care. In Nixon's veto, he claimed he didn't want to, quote, commit the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to child-rearing over against the family-centered approach. Nixon went on to say this legislation would diminish both parental authority and parental involvement, particularly in those decisive early years when social attitudes and a conscience are formed and religious and moral principles are first incalculated. I will let you uh, take from that what you will. But behind the words of this veto was its speechwriter, Pat Buchanan, who privately wrote Nixon these words, What we don't want is a national system of daycare centers where the clowns of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare can set down their guidelines as to what the racial makeup of each center ought to be. That wasn't the only thing that was on Nixon's mind. He was worried about a potential presidential primary from conservative John Ashbrook, who stated the Child Development Act was, quote, the socioeconomic and race mix of students would reach its greatest potential under this legislation. Buchanan and Ashbrook agreed on something professional racist George Wallace uttered only seven years before. I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And lastly, many conservatives thought that universal health care was government control over families. I'll have Dr. Codagno give us a little more insight.
1: So, you know, I think we have these two major strands in American social policy. One is fear of socialism and and anti-government intrusion more broadly. And the second is racism and uh, an unwillingness to give benefits to people who are seen as undeserving and i think now that it obviously includes immigrants and hispanics in in that category almost to i would say equal to the extent that it does african americans and i think that what the reason why social security for instance is successful is because it's seen as an earned right people Pay in through their working years, and then and have been told, of course, that they've earned their right to these benefits. Whereas benefits that aren't universal are that are targeted are seen as benefiting people who are unworthy, who haven't worked for them, who haven't earned from that, earned the right to these benefits. And I think that that's especially then tied in with antagonism towards minorities, which are seen Mm -hmm. as almost by some people as exclusively getting these benefits, even though, in fact, the majority of beneficiaries of what's now TANA, for example, are white. The majority of Medicaid, which is health insurance for low-income and poor people, are white. But people don't see that that way. And, the media sometimes plays into those kinds of false visions of who receives these benefits.
0: During last year's race for the Republican presidential nomination, Ronald Reagan talked often about welfare abuses, and he almost always cited the case of an unnamed Chicago woman he says used 80 names to collect more than $150,000 in tax-free income. Well, testimony began in Chicago today in the fraud trial of that woman. 48-year-old Linda Taylor called by newspapers
2: the welfare queen.
0: A backlash over social safety net programs grew and followed each administration after Richard Nixon, who, quote, wanted total welfare reform, the transformation of a system frozen in failure. To quote Jimmy Carter, he hoped to abolish our existing welfare system, Then Ronald Reagan called for, quote, real and lasting emancipation from the welfare state. And by the time we got to Clinton's welfare reform ideas, many lost confidence in our government's capacity to establish and run new programs. It seems that every new proposal from each administration got just a little bit worse as did the racist and misogynistic ideas that spring forth.
1: In California, a growing backlash against welfare recipients is turning into popular politics. Jerry Bowen reports on a tax revolt against welfare spending that may once again put California at the forefront of a national trend.
2: This is a winter of fear and frustration on the welfare lines and at the work sites, where the mood is not so much charity as resentment toward the poor who've become the living symbol of america's growing economic illness you go down by skid row and that and you ask them you want to work no they don't want to work why do they want to work when the government hand them free money that's the way i feel i mean there are a lot of them doing it say hey go push a broom or something but no they don't want to seizing on taxpayer frustration with the welfare system california's governor is hoping to win voter approval for major cuts in social services as part of an effort to erase a $4 billion state budget deficit.
3: California's spending for welfare is soaring precisely because it is open-ended, available to all eligible comers. It is, in short, on autopilot.
0: You'll hear this line of thinking echoed through the halls of Congress, well, mostly on the Republican side of the aisle, that too many people are taking advantage of social safety net programs. So they attempt to reform it with a jobs bill, a jobs bill that is usually a tax cut for the very rich in disguise. Just look at the Republican Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017, which Republicans said would pay for itself. Uh, It has not. And according to the CBO, it'll add $1.9 trillion to the deficit over a decade. So much for the party of fiscal responsibility. What we get instead are some good programs that could be better if we discussed living wages, access to free college, affordable or free health care, and, yes, universal childcare. What's also missing from this conversation is a discussion of unconscious bias and institutional discrimination in this country. That's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous choice. Hey, hey, Paul Ryan, shush. No one was talking to you, and no one misses you. Like I was saying... What is missing from the conversation is a discussion about our country's deep history of discrimination and the mental and physical toll it is taking on marginalized groups. Without full affordable access to childcare, health care, a living wage or growing restrictions to social safety nets, it's clear that many in the United States suffer a great burden, But one group in particular, black women, carry a disproportionate amount of that burden. And that's what we're going to talk about today.
2: My name is Christine Platt, and I would say my primary occupation is a storyteller of the African diaspora. So, I write historical fiction centered on Black experiences for audiences of all ages. Um, And I'm also the managing director of the Anti Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. So, that kind of ties in nicely with my love for historical research, writing, and law.
3: (laughs) My name is Hazel Levy, and my occupation is Research Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Florida College of Medicine.
4: My name is Jessica Young and my occupation is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Studies at American University in Washington, D.C.
0: You might have heard this statistic. Black women are 3.4 times more likely to die during childbirth, and their children are two times more likely to die during childbirth than white women and their children retrospectively. I've asked Dr. Jessica Young, Dr. Hazel Levy, and Christine Platt J.D., to give us some insight onto why this is happening. And these deaths or near-death experiences are not just happening to women with lower to middle-class incomes, but to Beyonce and Serena Williams as well. I'll start with Dr. Hazel Levy. What are some of the reasons you feel that women are, Black women, are disproportionately dying in childbirth?
3: So, um, I mean, in the United States... Yes. All women are basically d- disproportionately dying during childbirth when compared to other countries. But um, black women in our country are disproportionately dying during childbirth um, for what I think are a number of reasons that aren't fully understood at this time. And um, And one of the issues I think that is happening has to go back to, like, rigorous data collection, like how you measure these kinds of things. So if you think about it, like, Women in the United States are disproportionately dying during childbirth when compared to women in other industrialized nations. But black women in our country are overall even um, dying at a greater disproportion because we have a history in this country of excluding them from the mainstream health care, for one, um, Some observations have shown that um, women don't feel like they're heard, that their doctors don't take their pain seriously, that black women's pain is is considered and treated differently than white women's pain by trained physicians. And there's an entire history of this. Um, And so I think to look at it in a snapshot of today is sort of a mistake. I think you have to have a historical understanding of how blacks have been treated by the mainstream healthcare system in our country. You know, and that they've always been excluded, and that they have been considered to be different, right? So there's a there's a a, a, a general acceptance of of treating them differently, and so there's that. I also think, though, that um, there's something about this country in, in particular. So if you let me back up for a minute, and actually, if you look at our country's overall statistics of the number of women that are dying. During childbirth, if you disaggregate the data and pull the black women out, Mm -hmm. the rest of the women together have a death rate more similar to other wealthy nations Mm. in Europe. So even though black people make up less than 20% of the American population, the numbers for black women dying during childbirth are driving the overall statistic of our country, okay? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to know that, yes, this is, it, yes, in some states it's white women as well that have this oddly high death rate, but overall in our country it's, it's black women. And even if you disaggregate that further, if you look at newly immigrated black women to the country, um, they don't have the same rates as the African Americans that did not move here, that are from here, that are from our long history of slavery, Jim Crow, what have you, of our brand, of this, you know, United States of America brand. So um, so there's even a difference there between if you're an immigrant versus if you are, uh, are not. So it's important to kind of disaggregate that data. Another thing I want to add, though, is that how we measure maternal death is not agreed upon, and I think it's important to know that, and it's like a, a feminist thinker that like I am, I basically want to know what are the risks to women when they are um, entering into this childbirth process, right? And so the, mm-hmm. the the statistics that the CDC report are only what they can find on death certificates, and many many states don't include on their death certificates the pregnancy status of a woman. So you know this is this is all very underreported. It's important to notice that these aren't hard and fast statistics, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, additionally, I mean, there, when a woman is pregnant in the United States, she's also disproportionately Vulnerable to um, violent death, whether it's through suicide or murder, and often this is uh, related to intimate partner violence. So those statistics are not going to appear when um, within what is reported. What's being reported are the numbers uh, um, from medical complications of pregnancy. That's one thing, right? We, Mm -hmm. We want to know that as well. But I think, in general, as a feminist, I want to know what are the risks to women around childbirth and um early childcare, right? And those numbers are gonna be quite different. So I think it's important we kind of think about where what these numbers are actually saying.
0: I turn next to Dr. Jessica Young to discuss some of the environmental and policy issues that could be impacting Black women and their health.
4: My research centers on investments and policies that improve health through community and economic development, and I also focus on the roles that race and racism play in shaping these investments and policies. And so some policies that really demonstrate the connection between um, racism and health and how racism shapes um, policies that impact health is housing policy. So it's well established that housing policies among different levels of government um, has led to racial segregation, and we see the long-lasting impacts of racial racial segregation today. You know, you are more likely to see white folks living with other white folks and black folks living with other black folks, even when you uh, take into consideration social economic status like education levels and income levels. But when these communities were initially created, segregation wasn't a natural occurrence and today is still not a natural occurrence. There were decisions made by Different levels of government to decide where different populations should live. So, for example, many black families were excluded from the Federal Housing Administrative, Administration Loans um, in the post-World War II period, which provided many white families with opportunities to build wealth in the 40s and 50s that they have since passed on to the next generations and their families. However, many Black families were excluded from receiving these loans in a process called redlining, where banks and the federal government actually drew red lines around Black communities and other quote-unquote undesirable communities, including some Jewish communities, um, that indicated that banks were not allowed to make loans there, or if they did make loans there, the um, interest rates and the terms of the loans were not favorable um, and not fair to um, Black communities. And so being excluded from this federal uh, loan program resulted in Black families being unable to build wealth through real estate. It effectively locked them out of opportunities to buy houses and to watch their investments grow over time. And we see those impacts of uh, those racist decisions today. So black home ownership levels still lag behind whites today. And on average, when black families do become home- homeowners, they are more li- likely to live in places that have lower incomes or the real estate investments are valued less than investments in white areas. And the segregated communities that Black families may find themselves living in are also more likely to have less access to fresh fruits and vegetables and nutritious foods, less opportunities for exercise, higher levels of violence and crime, fewer opportunities for high-quality education, and higher rates of unemployment, all of which are associated with health. And as I briefly mentioned before, you can see similar patterns um, among other marginalized communities, not just black communities. And so moving out of housing policy and thinking more about um, executive actions at the federal level, you can see discrimination against trans populations. I mean, we just saw how the president attempted To um, prevent trans people from from serving their country in the military not too long ago, right? Mm -hmm. And the impacts of these policies isn't just about whether or not a person who identifies trans can openly serve in the, the U.S. military. It's about exclusion, not just socially, but economically, for example, working and, and serving in the military leads to certain benefits, not just health insurance and health benefits, but also access to, like, Veterans Administration or VA loans, um, past the opportunities to build wealth um, through home ownership, things like that. And so um, we see that. Policies impact marginalized communities in ways that um, both historically and and today that explicitly target these communities. And and you see over time what kind of um, outcomes these decisions have on public health.
0: I'll actually stick with housing for a moment and then we'll bounce Mm -hmm. up. To the other questions um in New York we have NYCHA I'm not sure what they have in Washington D.C. I should know that my family is from D.C. but oh, wow. <laughs> um but we have the New York City Housing Authority um and it's housing for low to moderate income residents throughout the five boroughs it's overwhelmingly disproportionately black and Latina Latino
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um it has fall the entire system has fallen into massive disrepair there's been lead paint found in all of the buildings um the water hasn't worked during thanksgiving most of the buildings had gas issues where they weren't working at all our city seems to be at a total and utter loss of how they fix it and um i personally not understanding how it's even fallen to this disrepair without a public outcry throughout right. the entire city. Um, I wanted to know how could the public or how should leaders begin to try to address these issues? How can the city begin to change its vision on how uh, we fund public housing through policy so that it benefits the community and the health of its inhabitants?
4: Right. Um, funding public housing through policy is a tricky issue. Um, you just described uh, issues in New York City with lid paint and um, units falling into disrepair, things like that. And, and we have similar issues like that in Washington, D.C. And supporting public housing is a major issue among community members in D.C., especially because we're going through a period of gentrification right now where a lot of low and even moderate income folks are being pushed out of their communities due to higher rents, rising rents and taxes on um, properties. And this has prompted us to talk about how can cities use public policy in a way that ensures that People have access not only to public housing, but to public housing that is healthy for them, that isn't in disrepair, that isn't exposing people to lead paint. And one way to do that is through public pressure. However, public pressure may be limited when that pressure is only um, being exerted by the folks that are impacted. And these folks tend to be marginalized people with little to no political power and little to no economic power. And so it's really up to advocates who have a voice and have the tools to talk to policymakers, to put pressure on them to um, not only ensure that public housing is healthy and safe for people to live in, but that the access is there in the first place. You know, in in D.C., uh, moderate income levels for uh, public housing is based upon a a median of the area income, not just the income of Washington, D.C. residents. And so one way that policy can address who has access to public housing is by reconsidering how we determine who is eligible for um, public housing. You know the way that we do it in DC, um, low income can be uh, at seventy or eighty thousand dollars in order to be able to afford to live in what is designated as a low income housing unit. Um, and so, making sure that how we define low income and how we define who has access to to public housing through policies is one route that policymakers can take so that it it benefits, you know, the community and and people who um, live around those communities.
0: So you had mentioned something a little bit earlier um, about access to food. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit what a food desert is and what impact it has on communities?
4: Sure. And so, It's difficult to define food desert because you can find all sorts of definitions um, all over the internet from government publications to advocacy groups. It seems that different folks have a different definition of food desert, but put simply, a food desert is a place or community where access to fresh fruits and vegetables and other fresh nutritious foods is limited or non-existent. And so the technical definition of a food desert deals with income and access to supermarkets within um, urban or rural areas. Uh, I make that distinction because there are different definitions um, of of food desert depending on what type of community it is, whether it's um, urban or rural. And so um, one definition of a food desert is an area with limited access to affordable, nutritious foods, especially areas that are composed of predominantly low-income neighborhoods. One definition that has been used in D.C. focuses on areas that are located more than one-half a mile from a grocery store or supermarket, have low rates of car access, meaning uh, car ownership, and have a high poverty rate. So this definition deals with distance to a grocery store or supermarket, whether or not a person has reliable access to a car, and if they are living in an area with a high poverty rate. And so uh, understanding food deserts is important because it does have impacts on communities, especially in communities' health. Um, in areas that are designated as food deserts you often see either no supermarket or supermarkets that are lagging in in quality and tend to cost more which can exclude folks from purchasing foods that are more nutritious and that support their health compared to folks who live in you know maybe a suburban area where there's lots of choices for um food outlets or supermarkets and grocery stores, and those prices tend to be lower as well. So in places that have food deserts, not only are you seeing limited access to uh, fresh and nutritious foods and higher costs for those foods, you also see an abundance of fast food restaurants and liquor stores, which may provide, you know the calories that are needed for sustained living, but the foods that are offered, at these places do not provide the nutrition that's needed to prevent chronic diseases associated with poor nutrition and diet like diabetes and heart disease. And these conditions are overwhelmingly prevalent in communities of color and communities of color and black communities are more likely to be designated as food deserts than white communities. But I do want to make a a point, uh, if I may, that um, I prefer the, term like food apartheid rather than food Mm. desert yes Um, why well i prefer the term food apartheid than food desert because a desert is natural Mm. and if you think about the creatures and plants that live in the desert the desert provides them with everything they need to live Mm -hmm. and to live well right? They thrive in the desert. They were made to live in the desert. Whereas in black communities and communities of color, where what we call food deserts are more prevalent, what's available to them is not designed to support uh, quality of life or to support um, a life that is, you know, is health-promoting. Food apartheid, uh, implies that what has happened in these communities is not natural. It's a result of planned decisions, um, both socially and economically. Um, some folks argue that the lack of fresh fruits and vegetables and in, in supermarkets and grocery stores in these communities is a result of economic forces, right? That the market has decided that these folks just don't want to eat fresh fruits and vegetables. They prefer to eat you know things from Taco Bell or Burger King. They prefer to eat fast food. So the market has decided that um, we're going to provide these outlets for food because that's the community's preference. And if you look at research, that's not true. The communities want fresh fruits and vegetables, and when they do buy fresh fruits and vegetables, it does tend to be from a supermarket or a grocery store that they often have to leave their communities to get to in order to get what they want. And so the term apartheid in this context implies that uh, the differences in access to fresh and nutritious foods is a result of political decisions, decisions made by people not a natural phenomenon like a desert.
0: Could under the undereducation of America be considered a public health issue?
4: Absolutely. The undereducation of many Americans is definitely a public health issue. And education is a public health issue um, because it shapes many of the environments and, and life circumstances in which we find ourselves living, which all impact health. So um, education is a part of what we call the social determinants of health. And this is basically the factors associated where you live, work, play and pray and age. Um, the communities in which we live and, and where we work and how well we age are factors in shaping uh, health outcomes. So education can also be seen as a proxy for opportunity, for economic and social opportunity. And for many folks who have limited access to education, it definitely shows up in their health. So for example, on average, those with higher education levels are more likely to have a higher paying job, and access to health insurance plans that may be lower cost or provide the benefits that they need to sustain a healthy life. Those with limited access to affordable education or less quality education or those who have to work to support their families instead of attaining higher levels of education may also find themselves with higher levels of stress and may be more likely to live in areas that have um, limited access or less access to nutritious foods, areas that are less safe in terms of crime and violence, or may live in housing that may not be up to code. All of these factors that are associated with education do impact health and well-being.
0: want to talk about Flint, Michigan for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know that the cause of it was when the city uh, quickly um, switched their water um, to corrosive pipes, um, Mm -hmm. and the lead began leaching into the water, but there are many other cities like Flint that didn't get the same attention. I'm trying to figure out, I think this is more of a media situation to me. I feel like people only hold one thought in their head about (laughs) what they can talk about. Um, it's an environmental issue, but it's a, a racist mm-hmm. issue at the same time. Um, I guess this is a more of a complex question, because for mm-hmm. me, I'm more wanting to know, how do how are we getting our elected leadership to be able to see policy in an intersectional way that it wasn't just an environmental issue? It is an environmental issue, but it's a racist environmental issue. It affected mothers It affected uh, poor people. How do we How do we start shaping um, policies that can that can see things on multiple levels?
4: Um, I think one reason why policymakers may have a difficult time with understanding intersectionality and taking an intersectional approach to policymaking is because we have a narrative in this country that things like racism, sexism and classism don't exist. And so if our policymakers are running on that narrative, intersectionality relies on the recognition that racism, classism and sexism exist. And so the, I don't wanna say like flat out denial, but the unwillingness to explicitly say that, hey, these things exist translates into how policymakers will design their policies. And so I think one of the first steps to take is to just recognize that, you know, racism, classism, and sexism do exist in the United States and that they do work together to create specific policy outcomes and lived experiences for different um, populations. You know, policymakers... Operate within an institutional framework, right? And so, one of those, uh, or the, perhaps the major driving factor in political decision making is whether or not this decision will get me reelected. Especially, you know, you're thinking at the congressional level, members of Congress run an election every two years. And so, these issues that often require an intersectional lens. The impacts of policies may not be seen for 20 or 30 years. It's not going to benefit them in the short run, especially in a media environment where even mentioning the word racism, you get called a racist yourself. We can't even hold a conversation about racism without being accused that our conversation about racism is racist. (laughs)
0: exactly and you and you you kind of brought me to this question about kimberly Crenshaw, and you know there's a documentary about sandra bland right now on hbo
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um people not able to and and i'm not concerned about everybody not being able to hold two thoughts in their head i am concerned about policy leaders uh not being able to hold two in their head (laughs) um Because, uh, you know, as Kimberly Crenshaw said, that we're missing the frames to see black women running from gun violence and other violence. And, you know, why, uh, you you know, you kind of answered this earlier, but uh, I'd like to get specific to this, you know, why black women, trans women, black disabled women are really almost not, if they're not seen, they're erased when it comes to violence.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's as if, you know, black women don't exist when it comes to violent actions, right? That's why we had to have the whole say her name hashtag, because, you know, the issue of police brutality became a big issue around black males. But black women have been facing similar issues for generations, right? Um, Not just in terms of violence from police, but also domestic violence as well. And I think one reason that folks aren't able to see black women when it comes to violence or when it comes to other issues that you know disproportionately impact them negatively um is that we have a history of devaluing the womanhood of of black women Mm. right that's why sojourner truth had to say ain't i a woman because folks didn't see black women as women and you see that's still playing out um, today. And so the humanity, the humanness of black women is often erased when it comes to discussing or reporting violence against black women or, or any issue really that, that impacts um, black women. And so if you think about how people talk about violence against women just in general, there's a tendency to ignore the role of oppression in that violence experience. Folks rather focus on the individual characteristics of the woman. Oh, what was she wearing? Oh, her skirt invited that behavior, right? Oh, Sandra Bland was back talking to the police. Well, what were you doing? What did you say? You know, things like that. We're so quick to jump upon the individual actions or individual characteristics of that person to justify the behavior that they received, including violence. And so we see that happen with gender and we see that happen with race too. And so then when you combine the perceptions that people have about gender and race, you know, when it comes to Black women's visibility in their own experiences with violence and, and other negative social outcomes. You know, you get an intersection of sexism and racism. And so it, we we live in an either or society. And it, it I think that makes it difficult for not just the general public, but also policymakers and even some professionals and scholars to understand how what we think of as definitive social boundaries—you know—we only think of things as in terms of gender. We only think of things in terms of race. We can't seem to think of the intersection of those boundaries. And when people do start to discuss the intersection of those boundaries, people don't know how to respond because it it challenges uh, the dominant frame that we we have in in our society.
0: Finally, I speak with Christine Platt, J.D. of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Institute to continue the discussion on policies and its impact on Black women
2: and their health.
0: What would it mean to have intersectional domestic policy?
2: You know, I think first it would mean acknowledging that there are people who face multiple intersecting forms of discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this would mean, you know, hearing, believing, and respecting their experiences. Um, And then I think working to dismantle current discriminatory policies and developing new policies and practices that, you know, would provide opportunities for these individuals. Um, But again, this is like, the ideal, right? I mean, we know, you know, simply because something becomes law or policy doesn't mean that people will comply. So these are just like, those are just my like hopeful incremental steps to a domestic policy that would be informed by intersectionality.
0: i I asked that question because um, a lot of policies, obviously, that we have leave a lot of people out. Mm-hmm. And um, do you think that's just from blind spots? And obviously there's some purposeful.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why I was like, you know, first it would mean acknowledging that there are people who face these multiple intersecting intersecting forms of discrimination. I mean, I, I the reason that... Um, you know, there are these missing gaps and holes is because there's people don't hear and believe and respect these experiences, you know, these from people who are saying like, so I'm not just facing racial discrimination. It's also because I'm a woman. It's also because I'm this. Like we have to first acknowledge that there are multiple intersecting forms of discrimination before we could ever even address a domestic policy on it.
0: I wanted to talk about weathering for a moment. just be, you know, a sentence or two. Um, do you know what weathering <laughs> it
2: is? And how does it affect black women? Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm like trying not to be too technical. You're <laughs> like a sentence or two, and I was like, oh, that's going to be tough for me. No, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, you can
2: talk as much yeah, about it as you would like. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> right, happy, right, subject, right, right. No, it is. It is. It's, it's heavy, which is why it's like, you know. It's hard not to be technical because weathering is a medical term. Right. Um, and it's the medical term essentially for stress derived from repeated exposure to discrimination that, I mean, ultimately leads to illness or death. So essentially, potentially deadly toxic stress from being black in America. Right. Um And, you know, there was an end depth study done a number of years ago on the health effects of racism. And what researchers discovered was that repeated traumatic life experiences, you know, cause this long-term continuous release of stress hormones. And these stress hormones affect the body negatively, especially the cardiovascular and immune systems. You know, and that's what makes the body vulnerable to illness and early death. And, you know, how weathering affects black women and why knowing this is so critical for black women is because, you know, researchers found that irrespective of income and education, black women have the highest levels of stress associated body chemicals higher than both white men and women and black men. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, that's related to this combination of gender and race discrimination. Um, and it's, it's deadly.
0: Well, why are well? This kind of leads to the next question: Why are then Black women disproportionately dying in childbirth? Is are those two things connected? Is is there an extra
2: aspect? Yeah, to that? you know, I definitely think they're connected, but I think there's so I think there's so many data points to consider. Um, one of the anti-racism center's first project is it's actually going to focus on Black maternal health and infant mortality um, here in Washington D.C. Um, and what the health team hopes to provide is like insight into the maternal health issues that are facing Black women and use this information to provide support and make policy recommendations that will improve, you know, these health outcomes. Um, what we do know is that creating and maintaining effective, equitable health care systems for women and children are key indicators of public health and components of a successful community development. And so in order to know, you know, why so many Black women are disproportionately dying in childbirth, we have, you know, all these data points to consider, you know, barriers to quality, equitable health care, logistics of receiving maternal care, the emotional and, you know, psychological effects of inequitable prenatal care, you know. And so once we have all of that information, you know, then we have to implement corrective policies that specifically address Black maternal health and infant mortality.
0: So a lot of the times we talk about the economic aspect mm-hmm. um, and prenatal aspect. But someone like Serena Williams, who has a net worth of 180 yeah. million, <laughs> uh, she almost got yeah. childbirth yeah. as well when her doctors didn't believe her pain. I believe Beyonce had the mm-hmm. same experience. Mm-hmm. Why does income not equate belief and protection when it comes to Black women and women of color?
2: Um, you know, stereotypes about Black women being unable to experience pain or being able to tolerate more pain um, than than white women, The states back centuries. Um, remember what I said earlier, that like the production of racist ideas did not come out of ignorance or hate, but out of this need to rationalize inequity and this need to justify, right? So this is one of those lingering consequences. Um, Slavery was a profitable institution. And in order to justify enslavement, one had to harbor racist beliefs and ideas about being enslaved. And so, um, you have these racist ideas and assumptions about black people being less than human and akin to animals. You have racist ideas and assumption that black women are, you know, therefore stronger and more tolerant and less resistant to pain than white women. Um, and these racist beliefs and assumptions have persisted within the medical community. And this is why, you know, black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy related complications. Um, So, yeah, these racist beliefs and assumptions about black women and their tolerance for pain are and have always been irrespective of income and education.
0: You mentioned uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw earlier, and um, she has said a few times that. We seem to be missing the frames to see the picture of black women uh, either dying from gun violence or other violence. We don't seem to see trans women, disabled black women um, when it comes to violence. Um, Why is... Why are Black women being left
2: out of these frames? Yeah, you know, and this could just be because I'm a historian, but for me, so much of this is historical. You know, this idea that Black men are the sole victims of racism and state-sanctioned violence, you know, it was similar during the era of, of lynching. This disregard and lack of attention to Black women who were lynched, you um, Another idea I think is, you know, what is deemed more sensationalized violence, like uh, being a victim of a police shooting versus a sexual assault. You know, I feel like um, just historically black women have been erased from that narrative. And I really applaud, you know, the Say Her Name campaign for bringing attention to this longstanding issue.
0: Dr. Hazel Levy gave me this note. Many of these poor health outcomes are preventable, and due to inadequate access to quality health care, a high U.S. unintended birth rate, pre-pregnancy health issues, and the toxicity of living against a system of anti-Black racism, including environmental racism-based toxicity, something must be done something can be done. Thank you for tuning into Obscene. Obscene will return Sunday, February 23rd with a new episode on the history and future of the Equal Rights Amendment. Enjoy your week.